I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Dementia Matters. I'm here with Dr. Ariel Willette, an Associate Professor of Food Science and Human Nutrition at Iowa State University. His research focuses on the connections between nutrition and diseases and disorders like Alzheimer's disease. In November 2020, Dr. Willette published a study in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease about how a person's diet may impact our cognitive abilities later in life, particularly highlighting how certain foods like cheese and red wine were linked to improved cognition later in life. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking to Dr. Willette about his research and how a person's diet affects their risk for Alzheimer's disease, as well as what changes we can make to alter our diets for a healthier mind. Dr. Willette, welcome to Dementia Matters. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the invitation. You are a former Badger, so welcome back to Something Badger-oriented here at UW-Madison. Always happy to do anything Badger-related. <laughs> Well, let me start by asking, what sparked your interest in studying the effects of nutrition on the brain and on cognition? So this has been a long-touted but little-studied area, I guess, of just neurodegenerative diseases, where they'll talk about, say, for example, how we're supposed to get enough sleep, how we're supposed to eat, a balanced diet, so on and so forth. But exactly what that means, well... That can greatly differ depending on who you ask, and more importantly, trying to do not just uh, nutrition research that is high quality and reproducible and rigorous, but then overlaying on top of that, doing cognition correctly, doing studies of brain imaging, and then trying to combine all of those together, things can go very wrong very quickly. So there aren't a whole lot of us out there. But ever since I uh, started work with uh, rhesus monkeys, uh, actually over at the uh, National Primate Center there at UW-Madison, I had a really strong interest regarding how obesity and related problems can affect the brain over time. And throughout all of my work, I've found that even starting decades before potential Alzheimer's onset, there are subtle cognitive and imaging-related changes in the brain that we can pick up on that we've been able to find are moderately to, in some cases, strongly correlated with how well we process blood sugar. More recently, we've focused on, well, can we look at actual whole foods instead of just certain kinds of diets? And does that have any measurable association? Because Sure, you can change what you know your glycemic index looks like or trying to control glucose, but perhaps it's a lot easier to say, well, um, less red meat might be a good idea in your particular case, and maybe more cheese. So that's what we've concentrated a lot on in recent years, and that's what we're focused on in this paper, was trying to look at consumption of whole foods and, and how it was related to uh, changes in cognition over time. 
So one of the things I, I'm hearing from you is it's very complicated because we talk about nutrition and it's whether it's micronutrients or whole foods and then doing proper cognitive testing and how, how you are doing that and conducting that. And then even those other tests such as brain imaging and biomarkers. And so you have to put all of that together in the studies that you're doing, which is why it has to be so rigorous and scientifically valid if you're going to start making statements about food, which is a really important thing to people. Yeah, it is. It's really easy to do, very easy to do incorrectly. And in the past, your research has covered links, like you suggested, insulin resistance and sugar consumption and Alzheimer's disease. So what prompted you to make this broad or, or broaden your study to focus on overall diet and whole food in particular? So there's been a lot of work that's come out of Rush University and a couple of other places that really helped pave the way for our better understanding of certain kinds of diet and how that could potentially impact the brain, not impact the brain. So for example, the late Martha Claire Morris, along with David Bennett, really had championed this idea behind like, say, Mediterranean diet or related kinds of diets where we've seen, you know, if a person has a higher Mediterranean score index, that's going to be related to cognitive improvement over time or less cognitive decline. And I have nothing against the Mediterranean diet or any particular diet. That being said, all of them are very specific. They have very specific criteria. And so you have a very kind of defined box. And some people are really in tune with what they eat from that perspective. Lots of other people, however, they know the kinds of meals that they eat, but they might not be able to really categorize them into, you know, oh, I'm really into eating a lot of shellfish, for example, but, you know, not so much like fruit. And it's the case that with whole foods, I think people just in recalling that over the last 24 hours, it's much easier to, to recollect rather than saying, okay, over a hypothetical week, how much beef have you eaten? So I think for participants, it's easier if uh, <laughs> much more time intensive to uh, do a diet recall, but it offers, I think, more accurate data. I think that it also offers us a window into different kinds of associations that we might not expect. Like, you know, for example, I mean, you know, growing up as a kid, I would always hear you have to eat your vegetables, you can't have two different kinds of starch. And if I think we focus on, you know, these diet scores, again, they're great, but sometimes they might miss these really kinds of unexpected associations that we see. And this is the one that continually popped out at me, which was no matter how we ran the analyses, what kinds of covariates we included, the one kind of food that continuously came up that was associated with not just maintaining cognition over six to 10 years, in some cases like actual improvement, was cheese. I, I would never have thought in a million years the particular food would be related to cognition, or if it would be, you know, you kind of expect more saturated fat. Of course, it's going to be worse, but yeah, no, it was cheese followed up by lamb, red wine, a couple of other things. And so 
Well, that really causes, I think, uh, sort of a shift in our focus and that doesn't invalidate anything that we've done with regard to mind diet studies or DASH or anything else like that. But it does open the door for consideration of like maybe certain specific kinds of foods based on their micronutrient composition, anti-inflammatory properties, antioxidant properties. Uh, it might be worthwhile to kind of focus on those some. And before we get into this, this publication of yours from November 2020, mm-hmm. can you tell us a bit about some of your prior work you know, in, in looking at glycemic index or sugar and its effect on cognition? Sure. So as I like to say, kind of my greatest hits album really was from around 2015 to 2017, 2018, where... With the Wisconsin Registry for Alzheimer's Prevention, or RAP, we had looked at insulin resistance or fasting levels of glucose and some other kinds of biomarkers and their relationship to brain glucose uptake, brain atrophy, brain amyloid, uh, basically doing a series of different analyses to really see if there was some kind of consistent association that we could see in the brain, as well as with cognition, that kind of paired with my interest at the time, still a big interest of mine, which is problem with regulating energy, and specifically how insulin progressively has difficulty regulating the amount of glucose that you have in circulation, because, well, of effects of obesity. Yeah, we consistently found that there was an association with uh, higher insulin resistance, for example, and less glucose uptake, and so therefore less ATP, less brain energy, broadly speaking, in parts of uh, prefrontal cortex and the posterior part of the medial parietal lobe, uh, areas that are really important for trying to get relevant memories online, relevant to your particular context, and also getting those memories from uh, long-term storage. So what struck me was that we consistently saw the same kind of association regardless of the scan or regardless of whether it was cross-sectional or whether we had a series of different kinds of scans of something like a longitudinal data showed this uh, same kind of spatial relationship and that seemed to pair really well with not just areas that are sensitive to Alzheimer's disease, but also ones that require insulin in order to not uptake all the glucose per se, but just to uptake some of it. I kind of liken it to, there are some brain areas that require insulin for, I think, particularly complex cognitive processes. And I can't think of anything more complicated than trying to figure out why we're somewhere, what we're supposed to be doing there, how we can react to the environment in real time. And so with the RAP cohort, um, I think we did a number of correlational studies that um, really kind of established that as as a foundation that some people have been built on from there. I I think really other than that, now we've just tried to tackle really every, every component part of Alzheimer's disease. We had one recent paper looking at tau, for example, and seeing if insulin resistance and glucose was related to tau uptake. And so clearly there is an important relationship. The next step, I think, though, was to try and see, well, 
how do we incorporate diet? How do we incorporate something that we might be able to, one, more readily understand kind of from a public policy standpoint and general public standpoint, but two, also introduce some uh, non-pharmacological kinds of uh, interventions to see if, you know, changing those dietary components might, um, might lead to cognitive improvement or at least less cognitive decline. Well, thank you for sharing your, your Dr. Wilt's greatest hits. I like that expression. <laughs> um, but now I want to go to that publication, the, the one in November. Uh, now it's called Genetic Factors of Alzheimer's Disease Modulate How Diet is Associated with Long-Term Cognitive Trajectories. And it highlights how a person's diet affects their cognitive ability as they age. So can you tell us a bit about the study and then what you discovered from it? Sure. So we were interested in looking at a community cohort of people who weren't necessarily enriched for having Alzheimer's disease markers or having a family history of it. So we used dietary data as well as cognitive data from uh, UK Biobank. So this is a massive database of wonderful, wonderful information where they have included, among other things, little ambitious goals like trying to scan 100,000 participants. <laughs> and not just looking at brain volume, but also looking at brain activity, as well as uh, some other facets of brain structure and brain function. And it's really remarkable the amount of data that they've collected. And so, among other things, They've done a, a gene chip array in order to look at different kinds of amino acid changes at uh, different base pairs in our genome to uh, allow us in our study <clears throat> to specifically focus on the um, apolipoprotein, uh, in particular the ApoE4 haplotype, which is the strongest known genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. So from that standpoint, we had a lot of people who over a six to 10 year period of time showed some cognitive decline, very steep cognitive decline. Uh, in some cases, um, people who had improvement over time in a specific kind of cognitive function called fluid intelligence, uh, the ability to rationally think through and utilize novel information without prior uh, knowledge, basically. That's kind of the gold standard. So we were interested in looking at how these people from, from, from the UK over yeah, a span of six to 10 years differed with regard to this two-minute test where they try and answer these GRE-like questions as quickly as possible, but as to child is blank is to adult, and you have to select um, from multiple choice what the most applicable answer might be. And it has some pretty good test-retest reliability. It has uh, some good neuropsychological properties that we felt accurately reflected what was going on with these people. So what we did was we took a particular dietary questionnaire, looking at diet over a week's period of time, as opposed to the more fine grain stuff, which we've since started doing some analyses on. And the question was, number one, is there any kind of substantive association with 
diet and this change in food intelligence over time. Uh, number two, did it differ by whether or not you were APOE4 negative versus APOE4 positive? And we proceeded along with these associations. And among some of the less exciting findings, we found that if you're APOE4 positive, it is important to keep track of exactly how much uh, salt you intake because salt intake was related to worse cognitive function, but only for people who were APOE4 positive as opposed to negative. And so there are little tidbits here and there throughout the report. But uh, again, what struck me and why I kept asking uh, the first author, Brandon Kleinadinst, who's a PhD student in my lab, to uh, keep redoing analyses or trying to splice this in different ways was it kept telling us that cheese was really, really good. That at least as a correlate, it was highly correlated with these changes in fluid intelligence. And it wasn't just say, this was um, for the outcome measure, it was on a zero to 13 point scale. One point over time would be, you know, a fairly substantive change. This wasn't just say like a fifth of a point or half a point. For people who basically ate cheese all the time versus people who never ate cheese, uh, this is a difference over time of about two points, if I recall correctly. It was fairly substantial. And even for people who ate cheese most of the time or even some of the time, there was something about cheese eating that wasn't related to socioeconomic status. It wasn't related to racial or ethnic category. It wasn't related to age or sex, but yet it had this powerful association. And that was regardless of whether you were a POE4 negative or a POE4 positive. The other big one is, so for the podcast, I'll, I'll, I'll nerd out a little bit. So basically alcohol in general seemed to be bad for cognition, but for people who were APOE4 negative, the more red wine you consumed, the better. And for people who were APOE4 positive, as I recall, it didn't matter what kind of um, alcoholic beverages you had. It could be liquor, it could be beer, but that increased consumption was related to better cognitive performance. That being said, in order to simplify things, I the way at least I advertise it was to say that assuming correlation is causation, that if you did drink more red wine, that that was related to more cognitive uh, benefit, that is less cognitive decline in some cases, modest increases in cognitive performance. Again, we retested that. We looked at all sorts of different covariates and pretty consistently, yeah, we found that uh, cheese, red wine, and lamb were all associated with uh, better cognitive performance. I mean, I appreciate you being able to laugh throughout this, but that is pretty incredible. And so, and granted, now I'm interviewing you from Madison, Wisconsin, you know, the cheese state. And so, of course, this is big news for us because good luck getting someone um, from Wisconsin to not eat cheese. And so, um, <laughs> of course, we want to hear this. We want to know, 
you know, and then I appreciate the comment about the the alcohol and, and the fact that you do differentiate those who are APOE4 positive, thus at risk, versus those that are negative and, and have maintained kind of a standard risk. And so what do you think the mechanism is for, for all of this as far as the cheese or as far as the, the alcohol? I mean, what do you think could be a reason why these are, are, are beneficial for people? From what we've seen in the literature and based on some preliminary analyses that we've been working on haven't yet published, we think that it, again, assuming that it is causal, what, what in essence seems to be happening is there is a lot of antioxidant activity, in particular stuff like glutathione, is higher in certain kinds of cheeses. And so what we've found is it's cheese in general seems to be good, but in particular, it appears to be the so-called hard cheeses. And hard cheeses, among other things, have higher levels of these various uh, antioxidant and inflammatory biomarkers that can at least suggest why we might see this association because when we think of cheese initially, we think of saturated fat. But curiously enough, I don't know, this might explain in part why people from France are able to eat whatever they want to eat and not suffer from such massive cardiovascular risk. So that cheese is more complicated than we might originally kind of give it credit for, I suppose. And for red wine, much the same fashion, because, well, all red wine is besides some sulfides and some other preservatives is, I mean, it's alcoholic grape juice, but nonetheless, there is a potential molecular basis for kind of what we're seeing. And so our next step is to take this existing data instead of data over a week long period of time, look at over 24 hours. And we actually now have in UK Biobank markers related to antioxidant activity. We can um, at least incrementally try and see if this initial hypothesis of ours might work out in the data. If it does, great. Uh, If it doesn't, then we try and figure something else out. But yeah, I believe predominantly it's antioxidant activity. So if you're someone, like for an, for our audience member, if you are someone that you know that has APOE4, you should be very careful of your salt. And it doesn't matter what type of alcohol you drink, that it, there would still be benefit. If you're not APOE4, then still be careful of your salt, but not as much of an issue. And red wine in particular seems to be the, the thing. Yeah, just besides the things that you mentioned, I think... There have been several reports out there that have stated, well, increased alcohol consumption might be a bad thing. Other reports say that increased alcohol consumption might be a good thing. The literature is pretty mixed, so I'm not necessarily advocating that people go out and buy like uh, 12 bottles of uh, their favorite Cabernet right now. But what I am saying is that we, in a very large study, possibly largest of its kind, at least based on my knowledge at the time, found an association that we think is pretty clear cut. We would like to follow this up with actual clinical trials to see if something as simple as these dietary changes might be beneficial. Until then, I would say that 
some of the dietary advice follows along with whatever your doctor might put forward, but there is a potential for actually having some foods that we normally might stay away from, um, in particular cheese. And I'll add to your caveat and say before this interview, I did look up to see about the relationship between alcohol and cardiovascular disease, mm -hmm. which it seems like alcohol does actually at, at light to moderate amounts can reduce cardiovascular disease. But certainly the field is still mixed on alcohol and cancer risk or certain types of cancer. It does seem there could be a relationship. So you're absolutely right. It depends on what you're looking at. As a geriatrician in clinical practice, we never recommend more than one drink a day whether you're male or female, based on our literature. So I agree with you. I'm going to put that, that out in the podcast as well. I wonder, how do you reconcile this, these important findings, particularly the cheese, with things like the MIND diet that say, oh, be very careful. It's actually one of the five that it says limit or be cautious of cheese. I think... And it's been a while since I've dissected it, but they advocate for limiting dairy intake in general. But for something like milk, um, in particular for, say, like whole milk, again, it depends on the sample size, when the study was done. But it used to be the case that whole milk was considered bad. And so then there was this huge push on having 1% and skim milk and so on. Uh, then there is an idea that whole milk is actually better. So some of the, with some of the recommendations of the MIND diet, they are geared around, well, obviously what was a staple diet of people around the Mediterranean for thousands of years. I forget what they advocate or what they say about feta cheese, but feta cheese is certainly occasionally used as a, a garnish in some of their foods. But down around the Mediterranean, it would be unlikely, at least from what I understand, um, beyond like goat's milk and a couple of other products, that dairy would be heavily involved in diet, certainly any kind of milk as we know it from from cows. But I think the recommendations partly involve this series of associations that we've seen with lower cardiovascular risk, increased longevity, so on, that led to the interest in the Mediterranean diet. But, and some people could certainly, you know, correct me on this, I could be wrong, but there was, you know, evidence for olive oil potentially being important um, just because of uh, its antioxidant properties and fat content. The idea of having a lot of vegetables, having a lot of fruits. So certainly you could see all of the dietary components that were included. For the ones that were excluded, however, I think to some degree that might get conflated with at least nutritional information or nutritional recommendations that we had 20, 30 years ago that we still have to some degree because it is so hard to do nutritional studies correctly, especially correlational ones, where because there was an absence of, or at least a relative absence of most kinds of milk as we know it, most cheeses we know it, that with a Mediterranean diet, the idea was, well, we just simply avoid these foods and you should be good. Myself not being a clinician um, and nor my registered dietitian of nutrition, I can't make any 
firm recommendation one way or the other. All I can say is that adherence to the MIND diet has very consistently been related with better cardiovascular outcomes and stuff like that. But it's always important to remember kind of the context of where some of these, some of these kinds of diets have come from. And sometimes the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. No, that, that makes sense. To me, that makes sense because this is very complicated. And one of the first things you said in the beginning is food science is complicated. And when you bundle and group certain foods and then study them, that makes it even more complicated because we don't know which variable has meaning, positive or negative. And so uh, I can appreciate that. And, and based on, on your findings here and the solid nature, the numbers itself and the different ways that you try to disprove the finding, it seems very understanding and reliable that cheese is beneficial. I wonder, and for my last question for you, is based on your on your research on brain health and diet, what dietary changes have you made in your own life and that you might recommend to friends and family about their own brains and protecting or reducing their risk of Alzheimer's disease? As we like to say, is an N of one. <laughs> so that means just for uh, what I've done and what's worked for me. Let's see, uh, based on those findings, well, because my wife is lactose intolerant, I can't test out the cheese part. But with regard to red wine, I feel like just beyond alleviation of stress, which especially during the uh, heydays of the pandemic were there on a fairly regular basis, I felt like it led to kind of a mild improvement over time. I also was generally good about um, not eating processed red meat. I had a lot more chicken, a lot more seafood. But for some of the beneficial associations that seem to show up, I uh, did try and enact those in my own life. And to what degree they improved or didn't improve things, I don't know, it could be debated, but well... I lost weight, I felt better, and it certainly seemed like I was a little bit sharper cognitively. But again, um, that's just me. Well, we'll take that, though. So thank you for joining us on Dementia Matters. We, we hope to have you on when you have more findings to report. Yeah, yeah. I'm really looking forward to getting our future work out where we can dig in and begin to say that Hard, it's it's hard cheese <laughs> as opposed to just cheese in general. So um, yeah, I'd love to come back. Thank you for listening to Dementia Matters. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to be notified about upcoming episodes. You can also listen to our show by asking your smart speaker to play the Dementia Matters podcast. And please rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. 
This episode of Dementia Matters was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Kaylin Rowerdink. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and Dementia Matters, check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. Follow us on Facebook at Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and find us on Twitter at Wisconsin ADRC. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.